0: From minimum wage to six-figure incomes, high school diplomas to PhDs, this podcast is about the workers who make up our nation's economy. I'm Allie, and this is Employed. Well, thank you all for spending your evening with me and coming onto the podcast to share with everyone what you guys do and the differences between your roles in the school setting. So, can each of you introduce yourselves?
1: My name is Becky Kramer. I am a school psychologist. Um, I work in the suburbs of uh, Salt Lake City, and I work in an elementary school right now.
2: So my name is Jamie Taylor, and I am about an hour and a half southwest of Chicago. I am a licensed clinical social worker. Um, I've spent a majority of my career in the school setting, and but in the last six years, I have really pivoted alongside um you know, serving as a school social worker. For the last two years, I've been servicing preschool through fifth grade.
3: My name is Aaron Pelequin, and currently I am a career counselor at St. Louis University. But prior to this, I was a middle school counselor for two years here in St. Louis, Missouri. And that will be the focus of my time on this podcast today. And just talking about the ins and outs of my role in a middle school and Yeah, so just excited to dive into that today with you all.
0: Becky, can you maybe give us a brief description on what it means to be a school psychologist? So as a school psychologist,
1: one of our primary roles is working with kids that have IEPs, so individualized education programs, um, and we do the assessment for those as well. Anytime a kid needs an IQ test, um, any kind of cognitive testing, that's sent to us. And then we do all of the social, emotional, behavioral testing as well. And then we work with those students directly. I do a lot of behavior work. I also spend time consulting with parents, um, consulting with teachers. So yeah, that's, that's kind of our primary role, I guess.
0: Perfect. Thank you. And Jamie, can you give everyone a little bit of a rundown on what your role means?
2: You know, I think what you'll find in the field of school social work, which I think Becky would probably agree in school psychology too, is depending on kind of what state you're practicing in and oftentimes even really what district you're practicing in kind of will your your role might look a little different than maybe somebody who's practicing in a large metropolitan area, or you know, versus someone who's practicing in a small rural school district, for example, or even from you know Utah to Illinois, uh, the roles would look different. But globally speaking, uh, a school social worker is typically taking some of those students that Becky and her colleagues maybe qualify for an IEP part of the school social worker's role would be then implementing the social emotional learning standards and supporting the student's social emotional goals on their IEP. So that would be one chunk of what my day looks like, as well as supporting um, regular education students in their social, emotional, and behavior learning, as well as advocating. Um, if I do a lot of, you know, parent workshops. I do a lot of linking to our community resources. And then I do a lot of more macro-based uh, social work in the school where I'm serving, you know, on our social-emotional support team and implementing more school-wide social-emotional learning from a leadership standpoint in terms of training staff.
0: Great. Thank you. And Erin, same question.
3: Well, I will start by saying that over the years, the role of a school counselor has definitely transformed. And I don't say that lightly. I think it's transformed in a lot of different ways. Primarily, I think we can all agree that mental health needs are just really rising and we're seeing them more so now than ever in our youth. You know, our, our our kiddos they need emotional support, they need new strategies, new ways to learn how to express how they're feeling, whether that's in their body or maybe things that they're thinking or experiences that they've had. Mental health is changing. We're seeing it more in our students and the role of a school counselor is very complex in middle school specifically you know there's there's puberty there's most students are moving to new buildings they're entering into middle school middle school counselor you know we support the students first and foremost um, with emotional needs um with social needs and supporting them academically we support the teachers to make sure that they're being held accountable
0: so i can definitely see that your guys's roles are very distinct. And there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration between your three roles. But it also seems like there is a lot of opportunity for confusion and maybe a lot of misconceptions about each of your roles. So, Becky, what are, what are some common misconceptions about your job that people have?
1: I guess what's expected in the type of counseling that I do, um, that's probably the biggest misconception that I get, is I'll have parents that are coming to me and wanting therapy for their kids. And I treat the kids as far as it's affecting their education. So those social emotional goals are set because there's something going on that is impeding their ability to access like the general education, whereas someone who has significant clinical needs, I'd refer them out to the community. Like I may refer them out to an LCSW that's working in that same or has that same title that Jamie has, but is working out in the community as a therapist. So I think that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions. And then like, just the fact that, like I said, that overlap is really confusing to people. It even for me gets maybe a little bit gray. (laughs) So, and as I listened to Jamie talk I was like yeah I do a lot of that too so we serve a lot of the same roles and I think that's probably why there is confusion but I think one of the biggest differences like I said is just the path of how you get there like what your schooling is that you have to do in order to get certified who's your licensing board all of that is a little bit different as well
0: and Jamie have you encountered any misconceptions as a school social worker
2: yeah, you know, I love that question. And I thought a lot about it. That was a tricky question for me, honestly, you know, I think one of the misconceptions that comes up, or that can come up, I shouldn't say it always comes up would be that sometimes when you know, and I'm a parent myself, I have three kiddos, one in fourth grade and two in third grade. So um, I, I completely, you know, put myself in, in the per- the parent shoe also. But one of the misconceptions, I think a lot of times is Parents can get a little anxious or, you know, a little skeptical when they hear from the school social worker. Oftentimes, I think, you know, it can be a little nerve wracking, like maybe there's this misconception that the school social worker, you know, are like working behind the scenes with DCFS or, you know, that that's school social workers, and all social workers, really, you know, we do, we do our best and we do operate from a really strengths-based perspective. And so I think one of the misconceptions, and it is, it's come a long, long way for sure, historically, but that can be one of the misconceptions is really building that relationship with parents and letting them know that, like, they are an ally, right? And that we're just another part of the team uh, looking to really empower and help the child be successful, especially in the school setting. I would say
1: it happens for us too. Like, I have had a couple experiences where, like, early on in the year when I worked or was new to the school, where I had met a parent who he said, he called me a nasty name, And I did end up excusing myself from the meeting because of the disrespect level. But he was like, I know he when I introduced myself as a school psychologist, and tried to explain exactly like what my role in the meeting was, he was like, I know who you are. And I know how you target kids. And I was like, Oh, okay, I'm, I'm not really sure what to do with that. Because I would agree, like, I'm there to be part of the team. Like I'm there to encourage the kids. Like I'm there to help them grow and learn and to build like she said on those strengths that they have and I'm not there to lay their kid out on a couch and find out how their mom has ruined their life that's not what I do at all (laughs) so there yeah there's definitely some I I would say it's more in the minority though so but I can't understand why people get nervous when I call and say that they're Maybe it was a concern that a teacher had brought to me. Sometimes I feel like they're a little bit on the defensive, mm-hmm. at least initially.
0: And Aaron, what are some misconceptions for your role?
3: That I just make schedules. And while a middle while any counselor does, you know, in a K through twelve setting, you know, definitely has a helping, huge, helping hand in creating the schedules. Um, There's a lot that even goes into that. We're creating schedules to make sure that students are paired with teachers who they probably will work well with learning styles, you know, for both parties. We just, you know, we, we make sure that courses that are put in place, if we need to add more courses or not, that's a common misconception. All we do is schedule all day long. And so I just wanted to talk about the complexities of scheduling. And then the other misconception would be that we just watch recess all day long.
0: And let's talk a little bit about the education requirements and the paths you have to take to get to your roles. So Becky, uh, what was required of you? What different tests or licenses or certifications do you have to obtain to become a school psychologist?
1: Okay, so there's a couple different routes that you can take. Um, You can do a master's or you can do what's called an EDS, which is education specialist, or you can get a PhD in school psychology in order to be a school psychologist. There probably are people with clinical psychology degrees working in the school as a school psychologist as well, but they would have to pass the praxis. So that's the exam that we take. We are licensed under the Board of Education. If you do the PhD, you can get licensed under that and you can work clinically or into the schools, or you could do a combination of both, depending on your preference. So for me, I did the EDS. It's typically a three to four year program, it's right between a master's and a doctoral level program. So the credit hours are right sitting right between the averages of the two. I think it was about 70 credit hours and it it required a thesis as well. And in Utah, I'm not sure that there's a master's level program available. So that wasn't even an option. So you do about two years of full-time school, two to three years, depending on the program. During the first year, it's just classes. Second year requires a practicum. And I think our practicum has to be 300 hours. That's in a school with a supervisor, and then your third year is your internship year, and that's uh, 1,200 hours working under a supervisor. And Jamie,
2: same question to you. So basically, in order to get your master's in social work, which is what you would have to and want to obtain to be, you know, a licensed school social worker, I went to Loyola in Chicago, and it's a two-year full-time master's program, and it's called an MSW, so master's in social work, and then the first year would be classes with a practicum alongside of it. I did it in a residential treatment facility for adults that were HIV positive, homeless, um, and had addiction, um, so a little bit of clinical there, and then the next year and the second year of the master's program, if you choose to go on what's called the school's track, which you would have to do in order to practice school-based social work. Then you would, you know, take classes your second year of your master's related to special education law um, and different classes pertaining to practicing in education and your practicum, which would be that second year as well would be in a school setting. So, for example, I did mine in a Chicago public high school. And then after you're finished with your master's, you sit for what's called the type 73, which is the licensure in the state of Illinois, for example, that gives you basically permission to practice in a school setting by the Illinois State Board of Education in Illinois, and then many people, like myself, then undergo supervision hours. So we, you know, meet with a licensed clinical social worker to obtain 3,000 supervision hours to then sit for what would be um, our clinical licensure. So many people like myself will do that in order to have the flexibility. Of practicing both in the school setting and in a clinical setting. So I ran a private practice part time for a while, just to kind of see what route I liked. Right. So that's called an LCSW. And you know, I would say, you know, it's probably split down the middle. The n- the number of school based social workers who choose to go to work on obtaining it takes about two and a half years to obtain those three thousand hours, and then sit for that clinical licensure exam.
0: And Aaron, tell us about the requirements.
3: Sure, absolutely. Yes. So to be a middle school counselor, you have to have a master's. You have to have a master's in counseling. And my master's program was done at the University of Missouri-St. Louis and. It was a master's of education, and then my emphasis was school counseling. But there are other programs um, like master's of arts or a master's of science. It really just depends on the breakdown of that specific education program at that specific university and how they deem how their classes flow to either align with the master's of art, a master's of science, or a master's of education. My program really did, it was really, really heavy on making sure we were not only trained as counselors, but that we had enough training in support to also think like teachers, you know, to think like teachers, too, and to have, you know, some very hands-on instructional learning in some of the classes that we took as well. Depending on the program you're in, here at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, it's KCURP accredited, which is just a governing body that says, hey, like, these students are being trained to the highest level as competent counselors. So at, at the end of your program, you have to take a exit exam, which is about 200 questions over all the counseling theories, everything we've learned in the program. And it was a three-year program. So everything we've learned in three years. So you have to take that program in order to get your degree. And then from there, you have to take a educator's test. It's called the MEGA. I think about 100 to 200 questions again, and you go into a testing center you take that and um, just a scenario-based test, you know, gives you different scenarios in the school, how would you, what What are the best ways to respond if you've seen this, what theories, so a little bit still kind of theories, but this is more on the state level, and there are different versions depending on your um, certification that you take, so for teachers and for counselors.
0: So then let's talk about the salary differences between your guys's roles. Becky, can you start and share with us what a typical range of salaries someone can typically expect as a school psychologist?
1: Yeah, it's a really wide range across the United States. Um, It really depends on where you work. Utah's probably, I would guess, middle of the road. Generally speaking, we're paid on the same scale as the teachers. So you can look up teacher pay scales on pretty much any district website and find it. The way that I'm paid is like a master's plus 40 credits. So So that's the level that you would start at, I guess. And then each year you work your way up through the steps. Um, Getting into (laughs) how they pay teachers is a whole nother conversation. (laughs) I would say probably on average, you're looking around $70,000 for a full-time position. And that would be a
0: few years into the career probably too. And Jamie, what would you say that you're finding on average as a school social worker?
2: Yeah, you know, it's very similar to Becky. You know, it's dependent obviously upon state. I have only practiced in the state of Illinois. Again, just like Becky's saying with school psychologists, school social workers are typically on the same pay scale as teachers. You would um, typically start out as a brand new school social worker, maybe around $34,000. And that would work its way all the way up to probably... Um, maxing out somewhere, gosh, I, I, I think 80,000 is probably pushing it, especially in the state of Illinois. So it's it's a very large range. It's very much based off of years of experience, to be honest with you. And it's very much based off of the district's discretion.
0: And Aaron, talk to us about a school counselor salary.
3: Depending on the school district, um, salaries can range. But generally, you're looking at about about 46,000 your first year, like I said, depending on the school district, you know, so there's a lot that goes into that, whether it's public, whether it's private, that plays a lot into things as well. But ultimately, you know, like I started off at about 46,000. This is all public information. So and then my second year, I went to 48.
0: All right. I want to hear a little bit about an average day for each of you. So Becky, can you walk me through what a typical day looks like? Sure.
1: I mean, it can really vary. So I'm not sure, like, how to, I guess, explain what an average day looks like. Um, but most mornings I come into school about 30 minutes before the school day starts. And that's kind of when I try to get my day organized, look at what needs to be done that day. So I like to just kind of plan my day, look at what groups I'm running that day, um, maybe run through some of the curriculums that I have available. I'll sometimes have meetings with teachers at that point where I'm doing some consultation, Um, mainly usually behavior is what the teachers come to me with. I try not to call parents during that time because I, too, am a parent of four kids and know that trying to rush your kids out the door to school is not the best time to get a phone call. But we do still have IEP meetings sometimes during that time as well. Right now, that's all over Zoom. So that's been kind of an interesting adjustment this year versus the in-person meetings. And then once the kids get to school in the mornings, I usually try to keep my schedule fairly open not run a lot of groups right off in the day because I like to check in with some of my kids that I know maybe need that connection, like right away at the beginning of the day and talk to them about whatever, you know, goals that we may have set for that week. Or sometimes I'll have like a reward in place for them. So I'll go and remind them of that reward if they complete whatever work they needed to do or if they meet whatever goals that we've set. So I like to kind of make my rounds with uh, the high needs kids in the morning. And I feel like I do my best writing in the morning as well. And since I'm responsible for psych reports, I try to get those done in the mornings if I can too. About mid-morning, I start running groups and I keep my kids in groups most of the time. I do some one-on-one counseling depending on the situation. So I'll see three to four students at a time, usually kids that are dealing with similar issues. And then I also am available, like I have a walkie on me all the time. I'm available for whenever we have those behavior emergencies. So that's something that I'm called into regularly. And that's where I mean, my day can really vary. Often I'll have a plan of all the things that I want to do, but the kids will have a totally different plan in mind and they're always the priority. So even with like the groups that I run, there are times that I have to be flexible in being able to cancel those or make that time up on the IEP at a different time. I think the school year kind of has like some patterns behaviorally. And right now we're really ramping up coming back from Christmas break and seeing, seeing those behaviors really increase. And it makes sense. Like a lot of the kids have things going on at home that are outside of their control and they've just been home through the holidays and, Especially this year, I think, too, where they're getting more comfortable being back in the classroom now. We're starting to see some of that as well. In the afternoons, same thing, just running some groups and such. But once school is out, we have a lot of our kids that are still attending online. Um, So I have a few kiddos that I meet with for counseling online. I usually do that after school so I don't interfere with their normal school day. And then we hold IEP meetings as well. And I catch up on all my paperwork. Any students that I see, whether I see them in the classroom or whether I see them in group, I have to do paperwork documenting all of that time.
0: Thank you. Okay, Jamie, same question to you.
2: Sure. An average day for me is very, very similar to Becky's. It's almost, almost a duplicate. I would say the only real main differences would be I do facilitate some classroom groups as well as what we call kind of pullout groups. So push-in groups would be me going into the classroom. I also do some home visits with our um, admins. So we do some home visits for some of our younger students, um, especially this year. We are in-person learning, but we've had periods of full remote learning this year. So we've done lots of home visits this year as it relates to just a lack of engagement with the remote learning aspect. And then I do a parent, part of our preschool program is is funded by the All, All Kids grant. And so I do some parenting workshops on discipline strategies and love and logic parenting and and then just teacher teacher workshops. We have several early release days a month um, that are just dedicated solely to teacher staff development. And so I'll facilitate those on, gosh, everything from you know classroom behavior management to um, working with special needs students to self nourishment and self care, which is a passion of mine. You know, so I do I get to support my fellow teachers and friends, you know, on a monthly basis, we get to do yoga and mindfulness. And so, yeah, but in general, my day sounds very, very similar to Becky's day.
0: And Aaron, how about a typical day for you?
3: You know, I was very privileged, the school that I worked at, you know, we, I came in working alongside of well-seasoned educators who had been doing this for longer than I had been alive. So I was really lucky, but a typical day you know, would be coming in and each counselor, you have your morning duty post where you are, you know, with your group, with your grade level of students, you know, just helping to supervise them, you know, before school starts, before they, you know, get transitioned into going to their lockers and getting to their first period classes. It could be that, or it could be a morning where I have a parent um, who is having a crisis situation with their child and I'm having to respond to that, you know, and this could be anywhere from 7.30 in the morning to 7.50. And I'm having to respond to that, you know, getting called to the office on Milwaukee, walking through, you know, some hard things, you know, with, with families. That And a lot of my mornings did look like that. Then from there, um, I would jump into a team meeting first thing in the morning. Typically, most middle schools are broken off into, off into teams per grade level, just to help keep the students organized and to keep things running in a systematic way and so I would jump in morning time I would jump into a meeting with teachers and that's you know where we would be able to talk about maybe students that are popping up on our radar who maybe need a little bit more like emotional social support or a little bit more academic support you know we would invite parents into those meetings or um, other educators across the building to strategize ways and to put plans into action and then from there the day is just running Parents are calling me, maybe a couple of parents who want to come up to the school and meet with me and, you know, maybe going into a couple of teachers classrooms and doing some push in support to help support the teachers, too. So those are typically how the days would run. And then depending on the day, you know, I could have maybe about six students at least who who want to come see me.
0: Sure. That's really neat to hear your guys' experiences and see how your days can often intertwine and overlap with each other. Becky, can you share what maybe a good day looks like for you? I was a little bit nervous coming back into
1: this year after COVID because I do put a lot of behavioral strategies in place. And I would say like last year around March was when I, when everything shut down was when I was really starting to feel like I had some good strategies in place for the kids because I was new to that school um, that year and was really starting to see some progress with some of these kids. So we had been gone for six months and these kids are coming back. And I didn't know like what that would look like because a big part of the behavioral strategies that we do, especially when we're looking at like a behavior plan for these kids is that implementation factor and keeping that regular schedule with them and just continuing to work with them because behavior tends to kind of go up before it goes down. And so when we're finally seeing those behaviors come down, I was a little bit nervous about coming back, but coming back actually was like really gratifying because so many of the kids had actually made a ton of progress. A lot of the ones that I was the most worried about were doing amazing. And I have a kiddo this year, actually, that I was just thinking about as far as like the success stories and the happy ones whose behavior in the classroom was, it was pretty awful and it was hard for the teacher and it was hard to work with the teacher because her frustration was high and totally understandably. So he went obviously up a grade this year with a different teacher and still saw some of those same behaviors right off the bat. But now like every day when he comes in, he's hugging his teacher. Hello. Um, He always hugs me. I know COVID we're not supposed to, but. It's so hard. Kids need touch. They do. And it's so important. And he's happy to be there. And I think that's like the biggest factor is I think a lot of his behavior was because he was so unhappy and just being able to see him be happy to be there and happy to see us like that, that makes my day. Like (laughs) That makes my job worth doing. Because now that he feels that way, he can learn and his mom, has way less stress than she did. And she's so appreciative. And um, I mean, before earlier in the year, I was getting calls from her probably weekly and, you know, and we're doing our best to support what we can. But like I said, a lot of these kids are going through things at home too, that you can't control. And so being able to help them trust that the environment at school is a stable place for them to be. I feel like that's probably the most gratifying thing that I do.
0: That's lovely. Thank you for sharing that, Becky. And Jamie, how about you? What's a positive moment uh, or a good day that stands out to you?
2: You know, I will say, gosh, any day that involves like collaborating with my coworkers feels like a really joyful good day, you know, whether that's implementing like a social skills group with my speech language pathologist or, you know, collaborating on a really challenging behavior issue with the student with the school psychologist or doing a sensory motor group with the ot you know collaboration that we have we're you know schools are so fascinating because they're one of the only settings where you have just some really incredible value at your fingertips you have people from multiple disciplines with different trainings. Many converge on the same mindset, right? We always have the same goal, but we were so blessed to be able to approach it with a little bit of a different knack, you know? So anytime that there's an opportunity for collaboration makes my day super joyful. And then I think too, any day that I feel like I've walked away with a really good sense of professional and personal balance. You know, I I remember coming out of the gate as a fresh school social worker 15 years ago, you know, maybe at like, what, 25, 24. And, you know, you go into it with so much enthusiasm, and you're going to save the world. And, like, you are just so in it, you know, and life, happens and, and personal life happens and babies happen. And, you know, you still have that same passion and that same drive, but it's different and it feels different. And so anytime I can walk away on a Monday through Friday, feeling like I'm getting home in time to see my kids off the bus. Right. And then I'm able to leave work and compartmentalize my professional life and my personal life is winning to me.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think that's something that's very applicable to fields across the board are just finding ways that we can avoid burnout. Okay, and Aaron, how about for you?
3: Two Novembers ago, we, we took the whole school to the movies to see um, the Harriet Tubman movie that just came out. Um, we just, we all had a good time. One, you know, like it was, it's a field trip. You know, students love them and, uh, and the adults love them too, let's be real. And just experiencing that with students, seeing their faces light up as they, you know, watch the movie and then the, the conversations that followed, you know, on the bus ride back. And then when we got back to school and, you know, did some breakout sessions, that was probably, you know, just a really like, uh, yeah, just a memorable moment that stuck out to me for sure.
0: So, Becky, can you share with us maybe a hard day for you or a challenge that you're frequently facing?
1: I'm not someone who like really like wants to take on what's going on with the kids. I do want to leave it at work if I can. But there are days I think when the behavior is just coming one after another. Like last week, I had a student that eloped from the classroom or ran away from the classroom six different times and was at different places in the building. And I had another student who did that several times last year, who also happened to do it once this year on that same day. And so It was a lot of like trying to find them all day long and just being exhausted at the end of the day and feeling like when I got home that that exhaustion was leaking into my home life. And so I would agree with Jamie like I really try to leave work at work and when it does kind of weigh heavy on me and come home with me. Like those are hard days for me. Those are harder days like to feel that balance because I do have four kids who also have their needs and and one of them has some special needs herself. And so being able to kind of shut that off, shut my day off and come home, if I can't do that, like if I've had a day that's kind of hard to leave behind, like
0: those are the difficult days, I think. Jamie, what's a challenge for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in the large picture, it's always challenging, you know, when you have some really icky child abuse or neglect cases those are those are you know those are hard to sit with for sure working with children from trauma that is you know that that's always very challenging and then empowering the teachers to really operate right from a a place of trauma sensitivity and understanding that yes we want them to master their abcs and their one two threes and you know, we want to see growth on those data charts. We do, you know, but, but really understanding that there's so much more, right, when you unpeel that onion layer of some of our kiddos that oftentimes we just don't simply have the time to unpeel can be really challenging and can make for a really hard end of the day for sure.
0: And Aaron, what's the challenge that you find in your job?
3: My most challenging days... You know, with also being being a new young professional in such a critical role, you know, like I said earlier, parents are our biggest team players, you know, they're parents, they need to be included in everything. But I had a lot of challenging days being young and, you know, maybe there were days where a parent were like, mm, no, we probably need to talk to somebody who's been doing this a little longer. Being minimized in that capacity, you know and a lot of times it was because of my skin color it was because of being a black man and i think that those days were a little harder but again you know i had i worked alongside educators who saw that happening to me and supported me and and pushed me in a way to not shut down and to keep showing up so i would say that those probably were my most challenging days when no answer is good enough for a parent and, and I and I understand that on the back end, you know, your parent.
0: And what advice would each of you guys give to any listeners out there who might be interested in pursuing a career in your field? I would encourage someone to maybe call
1: some of the school psychologists in the area if they can get a hold of them and talk to them about what it looks like in their specific area, because um, like Jamie's talked about a couple of times through the podcast, it really can vary from one area to another, what you might be doing. So if you are wanting to do a lot more counseling, depending on where you live, it might make more sense to do the school social work or the school counseling route. Or if you're fully invested in wanting to do that assessment, finding the districts that do mostly assessment, I think just really finding out like what the different models are where you live, because where I am, it really varies even district to district, I could drive 20 minutes to the south and my position or my role would change drastically from what I do right now and then I would just also consider just like Jamie was talking about like the different paths that you can go down with the different degrees and realize that like what you want and what your interests might be might change over time I definitely did starting out in the residential treatment and then moving into the schools so yeah
2: I would just say, you know, stay open, you know, stay open. Like I mentioned, don't ever take the flexibility of the degree for granted and don't ever close yourself off to additional opportunities, you know, and then lastly, really like, and this goes for anyone that works in a school setting, especially now is, you know, I know we love our students and we love our coworkers but don't forget about you, right? Like, don't forget about your own self-nourishment. I know, um, I don't know about elsewhere, but in the state of Illinois, we're seeing in the last three years, a huge, huge teacher, educator, school psychologist, school social worker shortage. We're, We're just really struggling to, I mean, I remember you would, it would be very hard to find a school social work job 10 years ago a lot of school social workers went unemployed out of their master's program. And now I could handpick a job. Um, We're just seeing a huge educator shortage in the state of Illinois. And a lot of that has to do with various things. But one of those is that we're just seeing a very high rate of burnout. And so self-nourishment is a passion of mine um, and it's a passion of mine for those that work in education. So take care of yourself because otherwise you're not able to take care of those kiddos um, that I know are the ones that are always on our hearts. So that would probably be my biggest, biggest piece of advice.
3: If you haven't already, I encourage you to um, dive into your own story a little bit our youth, they want to know that someone can relate with them, and, and when we shut ourselves off from different parts of our own journey and our own story, you know, that we keep tucked away and hands off, it, it it takes away, you know, in other parts that that part of your story, because you work through it, you may be able to look into someone else's, you know, life and be able to speak to them because you know that place too, and, Find someone, find another educator, whether that's someone who's in the, who's coming in as a new hire with you too, or maybe people in, in your counseling department, but you are all working to support the vision. And that's for the students.
0: A big thank you to Becky, Jamie, and Aaron for donating their time to the show. Follow us on Instagram at employedpodcast and visit our website, employedpodcast.com. Thanks for
2: listening.